Let us pray. Loving and gracious God, we pray that even in those times when we feel alone, those times when our lives are shattered, God, we pray that we would feel your presence with us, that we would hear your voice calling us to be faithful, to turn toward you, and to surrender ourselves in prayer. And God, I pray that you would hold me up, that I might lift you up. Amen. Hear now a reading from the Psalms. O Lord, the God who saves me, I have cried out before you day and night. Let my prayer come to you. Listen to my cry. For my soul is filled with troubles and my life comes near the grave. You have put me in the deepest hole in a dark, deep place. Your anger has rested upon me and you have troubled me with all your waves. You have taken my good friends far from me. But I have cried to you for help, O Lord. My prayer comes to you in the morning. O Lord, why do you turn away from me? Why do you hide your face from me? I have been troubled and near death since I was young. I have suffered your punishment and I cannot win. Your burning anger has passed over me. The punishment you have sent destroys me. They gather around me like water all day long. Together they close in upon me. You have taken my friend and loved one far from me. Friends that were near are now in darkness. Here ends the reading of scripture, and all the people say, thanks be to God. So today we begin a three-part sermon series, a three-part worship series called, Where Were You, God? This series is based on a sermon series of Adam Hamilton's that he based on a book that he wrote titled, Why? The title of this series is meant to express the disillusionment or the despair that we sometimes feel when things in our lives and in the world just go wrong. When the things in our lives and in the world just cannot be reconciled with the notion of a loving and powerful God. Theologians call this the study of theodicy. Theodicy asks the question, how can bad things happen? Especially to good people or to innocent people if there is a good and loving God who has ultimate power? It's a really good question. It's a primary question asked by those who have decided, in many cases, because of the suffering that they have seen in the world. Well, clearly there is no God. It's also one of the main struggles that people of faith have. Those of us gathered here who read scripture, who do all the things we know to be, to be faithful Christians, we struggle also when things fall apart. American theologian Langdon Gilkey wrote, the reality of evil in our world is the greatest intellectual threat to the convincing power of Christian theology. I'm going to read that one more time. The reality of evil in our world is the greatest intellectual threat to the convincing power 
of Christian theology. It's this problem that he's speaking to. Evil is real. I mean, we see it every day. And we see the suffering that evil causes, and it makes us wonder oftentimes, if you exist, God, and if you are good and loving, then where were you? Where were you when dot, 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 fill in the blank? So for the next three weeks, we're going to explore theodicy, and in our attempt to better understand, we're going to work to build a really strong doctrine of providence. The providence of God, which explores the provision of God. How exactly does God provide for us? How does God guide us? To what extent does God control what happens in the world? What happens in our lives? In this first week, we're going to ask the question, what is it that God does not do in our lives and in the world? And then next week, we'll wonder together, Why is it that oftentimes God seems so silent? Why do we sometimes feel like God has left us, that God is not answering our prayers? And in the final week, we're going to talk about, so what does God do? How does God act in our lives? What can we depend on? Y'all, I read your prayer request every single week. You can see many of them represented in in the bulletin that you received today. We'll lift many of those up later in the service. But there are many more prayers that we receive that people choose to keep confidential. And we gather every Wednesday at 1 o'clock in the room next to this room. A group of us gather and we pray and lift up each of those concerns individually, each of you who have submitted them by name. I talk to many of you. We talk about what's going on in your lives. And I know that many of the struggles that you face, they're heartbreaking. They make no, they make no sense whatsoever, many of them. Illnesses are accidents that change lives forever. Some that take those we love from us way too early or very suddenly natural disasters that destroy and kill. I don't know about y'all, but as I watch Australia burn, I wonder, where are you, God? As I watch Puerto Rico suffer its second devastating natural disaster in two years, I wonder, where are you, God? When people are senselessly massacred as they gather peacefully in their houses of worship or their places of learning, or their workplaces, I wonder, how could you let this happen? Where were you, God? This question stems from an underlying supposition that many of us, probably all of us, have heard at some point or another. Many of us believe now or have in, in uh, former days. It's a very common belief, and it's this. Everything happens for a reason. It makes sense initially on the surface. It's an effort to make sense of a tragedy that we can't understand. It's our effort to understand where God is in the midst of our tragedy so that 
Maybe we can feel some sense of peace or regain a little bit of stability when our world is rocked. We reason, well, surely there's some good reason that this happened. I mean, we may not be able to see or understand exactly what that reason is, but we know that God is somehow in this, right? And if God is somehow in this, then surely there is some good purpose for it, right? But there are some troubling implications of this belief. As a pastor who sits with people during very tender times in their lives, I'm faced with the implications of this particular belief on almost a daily basis. The most, one of the most troubling implications of this particular theology is that it sounds like God made this happen. Or that God somehow needed for it to happen or thinks it's okay that it happened. To some extent, God did the thing that happened and it was a part of God's plan. But can that be right? I mean, if that's true, then that means that a four-year-old who is diagnosed with a terminal form of cancer, that that was somehow part of God's plan. It means that when a person walks into an elementary school and in minutes shoots and kills dozens of children and school teachers, that somehow God meant for that to happen? Or the millions of children who die of starvation every year, that that's somehow a part of God's plan? And then I think of all the horrible abuse that we heap on one another, us human beings, that somehow all of this serves God's purposes, fulfills God's good and perfect plan for the world? None of this sounds like Jesus to me. I mean, none of it seems consistent with who I know Jesus to be based on Scripture. I believe that Jesus shows us who God is, and I see none of this when I look at him, when I look at his life, when I experience his ministry. The second thing, the second implication of this particular belief is that if I believe that everything happens for a reason, then this also means or implies that I don't have any say in the matter. If everything that happens in my life is orchestrated by God to serve God's purposes, then doesn't that mean that every thought or feeling that I have that inspires every action that I take, that that's somehow directed by God and I'm really just a pawn being shuffled across some sort of cosmic chessboard? Can that be true? That's not what we learn in Scripture. I mean, in Genesis, it's clear. God creates us and gives us free will. God gives us the ability to make choices. In the Garden of Eden, if you remember, the tree of, no of the knowledge of good and evil, that tree that God places right in the middle, and the tree that God tells Adam and Eve, under no circumstances are you to eat from the fruit of that tree. Well, we all know what happened there, right? <laughs> we got our opportunity to make a choice, and we make our very first bad choice. Genesis 1, 26 to 28 says, Let us create humanity in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the livestock of, over all the earth. God gave us dominion 
over all of the earth. God gave us the ability to make choices, and then God gave us lots of opportunity to make choices, to choose how we were going to care for all that God had given us. God creates, sets up the laws of nature, and then places us here and says, take care of it. God didn't intend to micromanage us, right? God gave us the freedom to manage using the ability to make choices. The third implication of this is that when bad things happen to us, sometimes we wonder, this is one that I struggle with, we wonder if God's somehow punishing us. I mean, the Bible says God disciplines those that God loves. When something bad happens to me, I have a tendency to wonder if I'm being punished. This is one of my greatest challenges, actually. I don't know if y'all know about this about me yet. Maybe you've caught on by now, but I'm a recovering fundamentalist. <laughs> I grew up surrounded by an approach that interprets scripture literally, and as a result, the God that I grew up with was terrifying, very vengeful, out to get me. I, I know I've used that comic in here before. You've probably seen it, the one where God is hovering over a smite button just waiting for those on the planet Earth to step out of line. That is the image of God that still haunts me sometimes. But y'all, those of you who are parents, who are grandparents or aunts or uncles, I mean, if you found out, for example, that, that your child or grandchild or niece or nephew, if you knew that they had begun to smoke, I mean, would you go out of your way to give them cancer, to teach them a lesson? And I mean, if your kid was breaking all the rules, sneaking out of the house in the middle of the night, drinking underage with their friends, driving under the influence of alcohol, would you orchestrate some horrible accident so that they could learn from those actions? I don't know about you, but that is not what I would do. I pray every single time one of my children leaves the house, I pray, dear God, protect them, keep them safe, bring them home to me. As a pastor, there is nothing more heartbreaking than sitting with a person in the wake of what is often the most debilitating, heart-crushing event of their life and hearing them wonder between sobs, what did I do? I must have done something to make God really angry. Why is this happening? Again, I see no evidence anywhere in Scripture of Jesus ever visiting tragedy or suffering on those he encounters, even those who have made mistakes, even those who have made bad choices. What I see is Jesus suffering with us suffering on our behalf. And what I hear, even as Jesus hangs from the cross, is Jesus offering these words to God on behalf of those who have crucified him. Forgive them. Forgive them. For they do not know what they are doing. Scripture also says, would any of you parents if their child asks for a loaf of bread, would you give them a stone? 
Or if they asked for a fish, would you give them a snake? Or if they asked for an egg, would you give them poison? If you, if you are a human who are sinful, know how to give your children good gifts, how much better does God give? Y'all, we, at our very best, are only a fraction of the good that God is on God's worst day. I'm not sure God has bad days, but yes, God does discipline us, but not like this. We'll talk about that a little bit more on week three. Okay, so pastor, God doesn't do bad things to us, but what about this? Why does God let these things happen? Why does God let these bad things happen? Well, there are a couple of conclusions that people come to when they head down that trail. One is that God could have intervened because clearly God has the power to do so. So God must just not care. The other is, well, God is good and God cares, but maybe God doesn't have the power. I don't believe either of these is true. I don't believe it's evidenced in our scripture. I believe that God refuses to compromise on our freedom. God created us to be free. We are created in the image of God. We are created in the image of one who has the power to create and the power to destroy. And we're given the choice. Deists say that God created everything including the laws of nature, set everything in motion, and then God just stepped back. That God exists at a distance, and that God watches us with detachment. Again, that's not what I read in Scripture. That's not my experience of God in Jesus Christ. God gave us freedom, and God gives us tools and resources. God gives us guidance so that we can learn how to live in freedom in ways that are consistent with who God is, who are, that are consistent with God's love and God's grace. Early on in scripture, we read about God giving us priests who teach us the ways of God. And then through Moses, God gives us the law. We get the Ten Commandments that teach us how to live in right relationship with God and with each other. And then there are the prophets who come along and they speak on God's behalf, calling us back into right relationship with God, calling us back to faithfulness. And then God sent Jesus to show us how to be human, to show us how to be the human beings that God created us to be, how to live faithfully. Jesus shows us how to exercise our freedom in faithful ways, how to serve God and how to serve God's good and loving and just and merciful purposes with the freedom that God gave us. Y'all, the psalmist's life, it is in shambles. It's a mess. Nothing's right in their lives as they pray. It's reflective of the experience that we sometimes have in life. And he expresses all of the feelings, 
all of the doubts, all of the questions that we raise ourselves during those painful times. He travels that journey. People of faith experience suffering and tragedy. Scripture's full, full of people, faithful people who suffer from Genesis through Revelation, including Jesus. God so desires to be in intimate relationship with us that God enters fully into our experience in the person of Jesus Christ. God is so committed to our freedom that God does not even exempt God's self from suffering. God in Jesus Christ suffers with us. God's answer to evil and suffering is not to take away all suffering, but to suffer with us. And the psalmist chooses not to give up on God, even in the midst of their suffering. The psalmist is praying. They're hanging on to their last bit of strength, reaching out to God, pouring out their hearts, entrusting themselves to God, because I imagine they're not sure what else to do. By the time I was in college, I had begun to really question the faith that I had grown up with, the faith that read scripture literally and believed that everything happens for a reason. By the time I got to college, I had really begun to reject that. I'd come to the conclusion that A, either God didn't exist, or B, this God that I had learned about was not a God that I really wanted to have anything to do with. So I made a conscious decision in my junior year of college that I was going to stop praying. Y'all, I had prayed every single night my entire life. I did not remember a single night when I had not prayed. But that year in college, I remember it very clearly. I can see my bedroom. I'd go to bed at night, and it was so steeped in me that I'd start praying before I even realized it. I have to remind myself that I was planning on forsaking God. And so I would stop praying. I'd say to myself, no, there's no point in praying if this is who God is. But I couldn't do it. Ultimately, I wasn't able to turn my back on God because I didn't like the alternative. I couldn't accept or get excited about living in a world where there was either no God or only this God that inflicts pain and suffering on the world, even if it was for some mysterious good purpose. I couldn't accept it because it left me with no hope. So I did keep praying, though my prayers changed quite a bit, and I kept wrestling. I kept searching for answers, for ways to understand Scripture and to understand God that was somehow consistent with a loving creator, that was somehow consistent with this witness of grace that I experienced in Jesus Christ. And I don't have it all figured out. I still have moments when I doubt. I still have moments when I wonder, where are you, God? But my faith has grown. My ability to trust God has grown. And with it, I've grown in my experience of peace, my experience of joy, 
I've grown in my experience of feeling like I'm a part of something greater, like I'm being woven into some divine purpose. Langdon Gilkey comes to the conclusion that the only antidote to the problem of evil in this world is faith. And scripture says over and over again, I mean, it's the most oft-repeated sentiment in scripture, this notion, do not be afraid, for I am with you in all things, even and most especially maybe in suffering. So I, with the psalmist, continue to pray. I continue to hang on even in those moments of despair. I continue to surrender to God in prayer. And the extent to which I can remain in prayer, the extent to which I can remain in relationship with God, is the extent to which I grow in a new understanding. Not the understanding that everything happens for a reason, but I grow in an understanding that God can and will redeem all things. If I can remain in relationship, maybe I can participate in or experience God's redemption. The redemption that we experience in this new, this redeemed, this resurrected life that we know in Jesus Christ. Amen.